Section 16 of Henry II by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 Henry and His Sons, His Downfall and Death, Part 3. In January 1188, Henry was preparing to return to England when Philip threatened to invade Normandy unless the marriage of his sister Alais and Richard were celebrated at once, and the fortress of Gisors surrendered to France. Henry at once proceeded to meet him at the usual place, a great elm standing on the borders of France and Normandy near Gisors. Little progress was made in the negotiations until the arrival of the Archbishop of Tyre, who preached a stirring sermon on the misfortunes of Palestine, recounting the capture of King Guy and the True Cross by Saladin in July 1187, a disaster which caused the death of Pope Urban III, and the fall of Jerusalem in the following October. His hearers were so moved that almost with one accord they vowed to go upon crusade, Henry and Philip, setting the example and putting aside all their differences so great were the numbers of those that took the cross that it was needful to adopt badges to distinguish the different nationalities the french wearing red crosses the followers of the english king white crosses and the flemings green henry at once issued orders at le mans for the collection of a tithe to be levied throughout all his continental dominions all persons who did not go to the crusade themselves were to give a tenth of their goods and arrangements were made for ensuring that none should evade his duty those who were willing to serve in person might take the tithes of their men and lands for their own equipment as soon as this ordinance had been published henry hastened to england landing at winchester on the thirtieth of january a fortnight later a council was held at geddington when the ordinance for the collection of the crusading tithe usually known as the saladin tithe was made applicable to england the king of scotland was urged to follow his suzerain's lead and archbishop baldwin was sent to preach the crusade in wales accompanied by gerald de barry who has left an account of the mission containing many interesting details of welsh topography and history and a very full appreciation of the services rendered by gerald himself meanwhile richard who had taken the cross the previous year in brittany was indulging in a little war with the count of toulouse with considerable success philip who appears to have incited richard to action in order to pick a further quarrel with henry now complained to the latter of his son's conduct and in june invaded berry capturing chateauroux and other places henry crossed once more for the last time to normandy to find that richard had driven philip out of berry after some desultory border raiding a conference was arranged between the two kings at the historic elm by gisors neither side would accede to the demands of the other and after a proposal to settle the dispute by battle between four picked champions from either side had been rejected preparations were made to resume the campaign some of the french troops irritated at the sight of the english resting in comfort in the shade of the elm while they themselves were out in the heat cut down the famous tree 
Philip was annoyed at the spiteful vandalism, and Henry vowed to revenge the elm. For the moment, no fighting took place. The counts of Flanders and of Blois and other French nobles declining to serve any longer against Christians when their arms were so badly needed in Palestine. Philip was obliged to disband his forces, and Henry did likewise, giving, however, secret orders for their reassembly at Passy. Thence he sent them across the French border to ravage the district round Mantes, while Richard operated further south from Chateau King Henry took little active part in this campaign, as he had taken ill at Chinon early in the autumn. A meeting of the kings at Châtillon in October came to nothing, and Philip began to tamper with Richard's unstable fidelity. A promise that he should have Anjou, Touraine, and men, in reward for deserting his father, speedily brought Richard over to Philip's side, and the latter then arranged for a fresh conference with Henry at Beaumoulin on 18th November. Richard and Philip arrived together, and though the former explained to his father that his meeting with the French king on the way was quite accidental, Henry's incredulity and alarm were soon justified. Philip, after proposing a mutual retrocession of all territories taken during the recent campaign, again demanded the marriage of Richard and Alais, the cession to Richard of Anjou, Touraine, and Men, and his acknowledgment as Henry's heir. King Henry refused these last demands, and Richard angrily flung down his sword and did homage to Philip for the three provinces which his father had refused him. A truce had been agreed upon to last until the 13th of January, 1189, but with its expiration, Philip and Richard renewed the attack. Henry, whose health had completely broken down, was laid up at Le Mans during the spring, and from there he sent William Marshall and the Archdeacon of Hereford to Paris to negotiate with King Philip. But by the efforts of Richard and his wily minister William Longchamp, their endeavours were brought to naught. A slight improvement in his health enabled Henry to meet his opponents in person on the 28th of May at La Ferté Bernard, where Richard's demand that his brother John should go on crusade was met by Henry, not merely with a direct negative, but with the suggestion that John should marry Alais and have the provinces which Richard claimed. This, while exasperating Richard still more completely, did not appeal to Philip, and in spite of the efforts of the legate, Cardinal John of Anagni, who threatened to lay his dominions under an interdict if he did not make peace, the French king resumed the campaign with vigour, and after several smaller successes appeared before Le Mans on the 12th of June. The bridges across the Sarthe had been broken down, and the known fords blocked with sharp stakes. But the French cavalry, sounding the river with their spears, found a place where they could safely cross and caught the English by surprise. During the sharp fighting that ensued outside the town of Stephen of Tours, the governor of the town set fire to a suburb whose buildings would have afforded dangerous cover for the assailants. Unfortunately, the wind suddenly shifted, and blowing strongly drove the flames into the city, which itself caught fire in several places. Realizing the desperate nature of their position, 
king henry and his knights sought safety in flight they were pursued by a force of cavalry under the leadership of richard who was some way in advance of his followers and rapidly overtaking the king when william marshall turned upon him count richard had for some reason thrown aside his defensive armour and seeing himself at the marshal's mercy called to him not to kill him not i the devil may kill you retorted the knight and lowering his lance he struck the count's horse dead bringing its rider to the ground richard at once called off his men and abandoned the pursuit and henry pausing for a while on a little hill and looking back upon his beloved native town in flames burst into a flood of furious blasphemy vowing that as god had cheated him of the place which he had loved better than all others so he would cheat god of his soul with henry were his son john and his illegitimate son geoffrey this geoffrey the only one of henry's sons worthy of the name was born about eleven fifty three his mother being a woman of humble position he was devoted to his father and as bishop-elect of lincoln had taken a vigorous part in the suppression of the rebellion of eleven seventy three and four resigning the see of lincoln in eleven eighty one he became chancellor in which office he was in constant attendance upon the king at le mans he fought valiantly with fire and foe and now that the fugitives had reached Frenay, he proposed to spend the night outside the castle so as to bear the brunt of any attack that might be made to this henry would not assent and it was geoffrey's cloak that covered the weary king when he flung himself down clothed as he was for the night next day refusing the advice of his barons to fall back on normandy henry sent geoffrey with almost all his forces to alencon himself making his way toward chinon john now took the opportunity of deserting his father although henry had just shown his partiality for him by making the seneschal of normandy and earl william de mandeville swear that in the event of his death they would only give up the castles of normandy to john and to none other geoffrey his brother base in birth but not in nature as soon as he had discharged his commission spurred back to join his royal father whose illness aggravated by the strain and grief of the last few days had entered upon its final stage meanwhile philip carrying everything before him had reached tours on the thirtieth of june there he received a mission from the count of flanders the archbishop of rheims and the duke of burgundy urging him to come to terms with henry tours was captured on the third of july and next day king henry agreed to a meeting at the house of templars not far from colombier near as but when henry reached the spot and dismounted he found that his legs would not support him and his agony was such that he was obliged to lie down king philip and richard on their arrival not finding henry denounced his illness as a faint and it was not until the king rode up supported on his horse by his attendants that they realized that he was dying philip courteously spread a cloak upon the ground and bade him be seated but his indomitable spirit would not allow him to display so much weakness he had come prepared to accept any terms to make any concessions but with the full intention if he lived 
of winning all back by the power of the sword. Philip's terms, considering the hopeless position of his adversary, were not ungenerous. Henry had to surrender all claims to Auvergne and do homage to Philip for his continental dominions. Alais was to be taken from his custody and married to Richard, who was to be recognized as his father's heir and to receive the fealty of his barons. Moreover, all those who had joined Richard during the war were to remain his men and not to return to their allegiance to Henry. Finally, Henry was to pay 20,000 marks to the French king, and the agreement for a common crusade was renewed, Lent, 1190, being named as the date, and Vézelay as the rendezvous. At the end of the interview, Henry had to give his son the formal kiss of peace, but as he did so he muttered, May God grant that I live long enough to take my revenge upon you, a threat at which Richard openly jested to his friends. Henry returned from Colombier to Chinon, and as he lay upon his deathbed, the list of those who had deserted him and sworn allegiance to Richard was brought in. He bade the bearer read out the names, but when the first name of all proved to be his best-loved son John, for whom he had done so much, he stopped the reader, saying, It is enough. Now let come what may. Broken-hearted and racked with pain, the great king lingered on for two days, muttering in his delirium, Shame on a conquered king, and cursing his sons. The sole redeeming feature of these last days was the unremitting tenderness with which Geoffrey nursed his father, who repaid his affectionate care with words of loving praise, giving him at the last his royal signet ring engraved with his symbol, a leopard. Yet even Geoffrey seems to have been absent at the moment that his father passed away, and the few servants who were there seized the opportunity to lay hands on everything portable that was worth taking, left the king's body lying half-naked and uncared for, till one William Trehan, known only to history for this good act, placed over his royal master his cloak, appropriately one of the short Angevin cloaks, the introduction of which into England had earned Henry the nickname of Curtmantle. Thus, on the 6th of July, 1189, died Henry II. Next day the dead king was carried to Fontevraud, where in the church of the great nunnery his body lay for a time in state. Hither came Richard, now in his turn king, for a while he stood and gazed at the stern, uncovered face of his father, then kneeling for a brief moment in prayer, rose, and calling William Marshall and Maurice de Craon to him, strode out of the church. In a few words he showed that he bore no ill-will toward his father's loyal adherence, and then departed, to return next day for the funeral. Henry had never cared much for the outward pomp and circumstance of kings, and such emblems of royalty as he may have had with him in his last days seem to have been either lost at Le Mans or stolen at the time of his death. So, when he was being robed for burial, it was with difficulty that the royal insignia of crown, ring, and scepter could be improvised, and he who had been the greatest of the princes of Europe was laid to rest with less ceremonial splendor than many an obscure vassal. End of section 16